The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke This is a Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Please visit calcedon.edu to download this and many other articles by Rusus John Rushdude. Greetings in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. My name is Shelby Luke, and I will be reading from Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushdune. Wealth, Time, and History. Calcedon Position Paper, number 29. Theft is a crime which increasingly creates a general uneasiness among people. Its prevalence is frightening to many. One woman, a political liberal, reacted emotionally to the sight of a burglarized home on her return. Quote, I felt personally violated, unquote. This is a very common reaction. The privacy and safety of a home once broken leaves a psychic uneasiness and fear. Theft is all too common, a fact of life in our time. This uneasiness has had dramatic consequences in many directions. One of these is in city life. Until recently, the elite lived at the center of the city. Around the central plaza were clustered the main church, court, or palace, and the great homes of the rich and powerful families. The central city was the place of freedom and security. The poor lived in the outskirts or suburb of the city. Look at almost any city and the evidences of the closeness of the great homes to the center is in evidence, except that now those great homes are either offices or slum dwellings. Taxes and lawlessness have robbed the city of its ancient character. Theft, however, is not of material goods alone. It can involve a theft of time and history. As bad as the rise of common criminality has been, The theft of time and history has been far greater and much more devastating. It begins with the philosophers and historians, and it was put into harsh practice by statist educators. Edward Gibbon, 1737 to 1794, is a landmark figure in this development. His history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, 
1776 to 1788, reflected the spirit of the French philosophies and he regarded them as his teachers. The philosophies mocked Christianity and regarded the past as a long night out of which reason had delivered them. They laid down a fundamental premise of modern thought which has ever since distorted historiography. Everything in the past must be viewed with cynicism, and every evil in the past must be magnified, made to be a product of Christianity. Christianity must be equated with superstition and reason and modernity exalted. As a result, today, if anything, in the past is exalted. It is usually because it was hostile to Christianity. Voltaire, in an example of this, as a writer and thinker, he was of little consequence and usually dishonest in his presentation of facts. This, however, is precisely why Voltaire is seen as important. He was a successful enemy of Christianity. Gibbon took this premise of the philosophies and applied it rigorously to history. He venerated Roman antiquity only to denigrate Christianity. The importance of Gibbon and his work is that he works seriously and methodically, unlike the French philosophies, to reconstruct history and the past in radically non-Christian terms. Man was now to be explained and understood in terms of man only, not God. The stage was set for a, quote, scientific, unquote, view of man in purely naturalistic terms, as supplied about 75 years later by Darwin. Gibbon was still very much a product of a Christian past. He viewed history moralistically in terms of good and evil. A humanistic moralism was the result, leading to the 19th century liberal fervor to right all wrongs. The new temper also led to a new joy in discovery, the discovery of non-Christian pasts. All over the world, funds, energy, and zeal were poured into archaeological and other research into the pagan past. Egypt, India, China, and the Americas saw intense research into a past, quote, innocent, unquote, of Christianity and the biblical God. The 19th century saw the monumental research and publication of such literature as, quote, sacred, unquote, books of the East. Humanism, however, continued its logical development. Max Stirner very early saw that all morality, all ideas of good and evil, represented a hangover from a biblical past. Nietzsche called for life beyond good and evil, and in the 1970s, Walter Kaufman logically attacked the idea of guilt and justice as relics of the Bible and called the tempter's premise of Genesis 3, 1 through 5, the true basis for human life. Historians reflected the same development. They began to speak of the meaninglessness of history. Providential history was not even a possible option for them. The world or universe had arisen out of a meaningless nothingness. It had no purpose nor direction, and its destiny is universal death. Such men found a Christian declaration of total meaning a particularly offensive fact. At one collegiate conference, a professor from a major university graduate school was deeply offended and horrified because, in my address, 
I spoke of the total rationality of creation and history, because it is the handiwork of the totally rational God. He held that the universe had in it only a thin and temporary edge of rationality in the mind of man. Thus, for modern man, because the world and the past are meaningless, so too are the present and the future. This attitude has infiltrated the modern mind through the state school's social studies program and its radical relativism. The result is the great theft, the grand heist of all history. Modern man finds life robbed of meaning. Instead of a universe created, governed, and filled by the triune God, and peopled with God's heavenly host and guardian angels, it is an empty world. No robbed householder, returning to find his home stripped of its valuables, finds a more empty dwelling than modern man. By the time he finishes his schooling, the world is for him an empty room. Even in a crowded place he is surrounded, not by men and women created in the image of God and under his government, but empty faces and empty minds. Life is full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Modern man thus, although he has inherited a great technological history and development, is very poor. He has no meaningful and purposive history. The uneasiness felt by people whose house has been robbed is an example of the disquiet modern man feels as he views life, time, and history. It is the feeling which once marked the dying of Greece and of Rome, and it expressed itself in the old proverb, Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The Christian today is commonly infected by this same temper. The spirit of the age has a widespread contamination. The contemporary Christian may believe in God and in the Bible from cover to cover, but the Lord seems far away, the communists and the IRS very near. And what is a man to do? The real presence of the Lord is not very meaningful to him. It is the real presence of the devil which seems to be most important to all too many Christians. Early in this century, Hallbrook Jackson in the 1890s, 1913, ably characterized the new spirit. The whole attitude of the new decadence he saw contained in Ernest Dawson's famous poem on Sinara. He called it, quote, that insatiate demand of a soul surfeited with the food that nourishes not and finding what relief it can in a rapture of desolation, unquote. In the same era, Oscar Wilde expressed the modern will to perversity in his life, and in his epigrams. One such epigram is very revealing. Quote, I don't like novels that end happily. They depress me so much. Unquote. And why not? If life has no happy endings because it is meaningless, why should a novel have one? In my student days, a professor took some time to rail against happy endings as unrealistic and not true to life. His own life manifested a willful destruction of every possibility of happiness. We see the consequences in modern literature. It is a long war against meaning, an assault on morality as a myth, and a declaration of war against all who hold to biblical faith. 
Modern literature manifests a hatred of progress and industry, of patriotism, fidelity, and love as against sexuality. The new frontier for literature was now the moral underground and underground man. In 1871, Edward Goncourt manifested the new temper in his comment, quote, The riffraff have for me the particular attraction of races unknown and undiscovered, something of that exotic quality which travelers seek in far-off lands at the cost of many hardships, unquote. Other men were still excited by ancient Troy, Egypt, India, and China, but the artist and the writer now had a new world to explore, the world of the underground. Hence, for Jean-Paul Sartre, Jean Genet became Saint Genet. Norman Mailer lionized a convict, secured his release, and the result was a killing. The moral underground has become holy ground to modern writers, and the only thing that stirs their wrath is biblical faith and morality. The empty world was made even more empty by the poets and writers began to insist that meaning was anathema to a work of art. Symbolism began to be popular, greatly reinforced by Freudianism and the doctrine of the unconscious. Rational and coherent meaning had to give way to vague expressions of underground impulses and intentions. Not only was the world emptied, but now the mind also. Malormi's Herodias said, quote, I await a thing unknown, unquote. An expressive line, because modern man continually awaits the unknown, never the sure hand of God. Arthur Rimbaud, in a letter to Paul Dimony, May 15, 1871, wrote, quote, the poet makes himself a seer by long, intensive, and reasoned disordering of all the senses, unquote. The goal of much literature since has been to produce the same disordering in all of us. The result of all of this has been the impoverishing of man. Man's greatest and surest wealth lies in the religious realm, in the meaning which biblical faith provides. The Bible tells man that the world witnesses to the glory of God, Psalms 19. The rainbow is a reminder to men who will see it that God will preserve this world and finally renew it into an eternal glory. The rainbow signifies God's providential peace towards the very inanimate creation. The Sabbath requires rest one day in seven and one year in seven. It is a sign that the future essentially rests, not on man's shoulders, but on God's government and grace. Thus, man's future is not man-made, but either God-blessed or God-cursed. In either case, the handiwork of God. The Sabbath thus calls on man to leave the government on God's shoulders and to recognize that the Lord governs and rules man's own life better than man can ever dream of doing. God's signs tell us that God the Lord is closer to us than we are to ourselves. We are not alone, nor in an empty universe. Francis Thompson, 1859 to 1907, in his wonderful poem, quote, The Kingdom of God in No Strange Land, unquote, expressed this beautifully. In the second stanza, he wrote, Does the fish soar to find the ocean, the eagle plunge to find the air, that we ask of the stars in motion, if they have rumor of thee there? 
The poverty of modern man is thus very great. He lives in a dead and empty world, he believes, but the deadness and the emptiness are in his own soul. The psalmist tells us concerning Israel in the wilderness that, quote, they soon forget his, God's works. They waited not for his counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. And he gave them their request, but sent leanness into their souls, unquote. Psalms 106, 13 through 15. Leanness is very much in the souls of modern men, however fat their bodies. But now, inexorably, the consequences of their apostasy are beginning to come home to them. The economics of humanism lead always to disaster. Fiat money is sooner or later no money at all, and the inflation-created wealth deflates into disaster. The economic chickens are coming home to roost with a vengeance. We will see more inflation and more dislocation as well. Today, more and more Americans are unable to buy either houses or cars because the price is too high. The humanists are trying to solve the problem with more inflation, which will only increase the gap between affordability and purchase price. This gap will set in not only with respect to automobiles and houses, but other things as well. As a consequence of this gap, one segment of the economy after another will cease to be affordable to more people, and unemployment will increase. The emptiness which humanism has brought to time and history will become an emptiness in the pocketbook and at the dinner table. Modern man is singularly unprepared for trouble. He has too meager a reserve of inner strength to cope with problems. On top of that, he is at every turn harried by his new God, the state. When the state fails him, as it most certainly shall, and his money fails him also and becomes very cheap paper, the poverty of modern man will be very great, and it will be an evil poverty. The treasures of humanism are corruptible ones, and they are now steadily appearing for what they are. We are summoned to do otherwise. Quote, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Unquote. Matthew six twenty through 21 Our greatest and surest treasure is God the Lord, His grace and government. We are not alone. We are the people of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Revelation 19:16. We have been called to victory, knowing that, quote, whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, even our faith, unquote, 1 John 5, 4. God's victory requires the destruction of the present world order, and he will destroy it. God laughs at the plans and conspirings of his enemies, quote, the Lord shall have them in derision, unquote. Psalms 2, 4. His victory is sure and inevitable, and his presence and government fills all heaven and earth and transcends all things. February 1982. Wealth and the State. Chalcedon Position Paper Number 30. A key aspect of idolatry is that an often otherwise legitimate aspect of this world is made absolute. Very commonly, the state, which has a very limited but lawful status under God, is made into an idol and becomes, in Hegel's terms, 
God walking on earth. This is idolatry. However, it is equally false to see the state as absolute evil and the source of sin. It is the heart of man which is the source of sin, and the state reflects our sins and our envious desires. The same is true of wealth. It is not in and of itself good, nor is it evil. It is man who makes wealth either a good or an evil. Wealth can be a blessing from God and a means whereby we can bless others, or it can be a witness to our lust for power and a curse to others. Private wealth can capitalize a society as it has in Christendom, or it can decapitalize society as in old India, where the vast wealth of the Rajas served only their pleasures. Attempts, therefore, to think of wealth in isolation from God and his purposes lead us readily into idolatry. Wealth is made into an ultimate good or an ultimate evil, and the latter is becoming all too common in our day. For some churchmen, the ultimate evil is to be rich, especially a rich Christian in a hungry world. Some pastors actually declare that it is a sin for any man to be paid more than $20,000 a year or, as another holds, more than $40,000 a year, which may be his way of saying it is a sin to make more than I do. Wealth, like all things else, must be understood in terms of God's purposes. Any consideration apart from that is not faithful to Scripture. Again and again, the Bible speaks of God's concern for the poor, and we are told that the poor man is our brother. But it would be absurd to conclude that poverty is seen as a happy goal for man. Rather, we are told, if God's people are faithful to his law, quote, there shall be no poor among you, for the Lord shall greatly bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance to possess it. Only if thou carefully hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe to do all these commandments which I command thee this day, unquote. Deuteronomy 15:4-5. God thus designates the abolition of poverty as the goal of his law word. To avoid the force of Deuteronomy 15:4-5, all too many will cite Matthew 26:11. "For you have the poor always with you, but me you have not always." Unquote. All this means is that the Lord told the disciples that during their lifetime they would always have opportunities to minister to the poor, but not to his physical person and presence. Over and over again, the Bible stresses the fact that the godly seed must inherit the wealth and that God's purpose in time is that all the world's wealth pour into the kingdom of God. Quote, you shall eat the riches of the Gentiles and in their glory shall ye boast yourselves. Unquote. Isaiah 61, 6. God's purpose is that wealth capitalize the godly and through them his kingdom. This capitalization of the kingdom of God means conversion, knowledge, technology, and godly progress in every area of life and thought. The modern world, however, is deeply committed to decapitalization because of the reign of envy. Envy says, if I cannot be rich, let no other man be rich. Modern politics and economics is governed by envy, and the envy cloaks itself in the name of the welfare of the poor. The world is now seeing the economic consequences of decapitalization. 
Through taxation and inflation, men's assets have been watered down and decapitalized. We hear much talk about the wealth of the, quote, big, unquote, corporations, and too little about their precarious existence. Martin D. Weiss, in The Great Money Panic, 1981, points out that in 1973, General Motors and its subsidiaries had an interest cost of 36 cents of every dollar of net profits. In 1979, interest costs were 93 cents of every dollar of net profit. The cost of borrowed money was almost equal to the money earned. The situation since has grown worse. In varying degrees, all of the 500 major corporations in the United States, save one, are in the same predicament. Probably the largest of all American corporations is General Motors. How, quote, big, unquote, is it? The press, the university, the pulpit, and the media promote the idea of gigantism as though our major corporations are rivals in size and wealth to the United States. However, as Michael Novak in Tort a Theology of the Corporation, 1981, has pointed out, quote, running a multinational corporation in the Fortune 500 is in most instances, about equivalent to running a major university, unquote. The smallest of the 500 has only 529 employees. The largest, General Motors, has no more than 14,000 employees in Michigan. Add to this, it's over 200 units in over 177 congressional districts, and General Motors still does not equal in size and wealth the University of California. The problem with the corporations has not been their size and power, but their cowardice in the face of federal power and their too frequent compliance. The corporations have been decapitalized by controls, taxation, and inflation, and the people also. As long as inflation and fiat money continue, this decapitalization will continue. Each succeeding presidency has furthered this decapitalization in the name of remedying it. To rob the people, every political scoundrel pleads a great concern for the poor and the needy while never giving to any need out of their own, often considerable, wealth. The central guilt, however, belongs to the church. There is scarcely a seminary where liberation theology, a sentimental form of Marxism, is not taught. Catholic and Protestant seminaries and missionary agencies are too often cesspools of liberation theology. The pulpit, too, is radically delinquent. Where do we hear sermons on Matthew twenty-three fourteen? Quote, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore you shall receive the greater damnation. Unquote. Our Lord here thunders out against an evil which was small compared to what it is commonplace today. Our confiscation by a state and inheritance taxes of the properties rightfully belonging to widows and orphans. It is easy in such contemporary instances to feel a rage against the Internal Revenue Service, but this is to miss the point. The IRS is the agency of the voters' envy. Through Congress, we enact envy into law, and now that envy reaches into our pockets, we are angry. This is not to say that the IRS is without guilt. 
but that the primary guilt rests with Congress and the people. The fact is that the majority of the people want out of envy to see their superiors hurt, even if it means their own hurt. A friend, while in a country in Europe, was discussing the confiscatory taxation of that nation and called attention to its destructiveness. His host defended the taxation while agreeing as to its threat. There are reason. It's good to see the high and mighty humbled. Octavio Paz, in The Labyrinth of Solitude, 1961, said, quote, Marx wrote that all radicalism is a form of humanism, since man is the root of both reason and society. Thus, every revolution tries to create a world in which man, free at last from the trammels of the old regime, can express himself truly and fulfill his human condition. Man is a being who can realize himself and be himself only in a revolutionary society. Unquote. This revolutionary society is the goal of every humanistic state. Some hope to achieve it by violence, others by democratic change. In either case, the goal is the same, man as God, or more specifically, the humanistic state as God. Since one attribute of God is creation, the modern state seeks to create wealth, cradle-to-grave or womb-to-tomb security, and also to create money. Modern money, fiat, paper money is the result. It is state-created money, which is used to erode all traditional forms of wealth and to place all wealth under the control of the state. We see today small family forms in the same family for generations or from the colonial era being sold because of taxes. This disaster has also taken place in Britain and elsewhere. Godly wealth in Scripture is in terms of the faithful development of potentialities under God. God created the world, and He created the possibility of wealth through its natural resources, the earth's fertility, and the mind of man. Creation and all its ingredients are the handiwork of the triune God and none other. It is his law, therefore, which is the only true ground for godly wealth. The Lord condemns all trust in wealth as a form of humanism, as a kind of worship of the creation of our own hands rather than the creator of all. This, however, is the kind of wealth the modern state regards as alone acceptable, a state-created humanistic wealth. Instead of being defined in terms of some God-given aspect of creation, gold, silver, land, or other assets, all wealth is to be reduced to state-created paper. Now, the value of money is its liquidity, which makes for its ready and easy use. When the modern hypertaxing state creates a paper money inflation, it thereby requires every other form of wealth to be equally liquid. The family form is no longer an inheritance from the past to the future generations. It is converted from a stable form of wealth to a highly unstable and liquid form by paper money, inflation, and taxation. In the years of limited state power, the tax on a family form in many areas was a few dollars at most. After World War II, many farmers were shocked when their taxes hit $25.00 and then $50. Now they run into the thousands of dollars. At present, 
A growing number of American farmers are in serious trouble because of the combination of high taxes and debts they cannot repay. In the United States, every economic crisis has been preceded by a farm crisis. Decapitalization is a worldwide fact today. In the Soviet Union, it is far gone and not for the first time. In 1939, Stalin's Russia was bankrupt by means of World War II. It recapitalized itself through an act of piracy approved by Roosevelt and Churchill. The Soviet Union was allowed to seize Central Europe, cannibalize East Germany and Poland, and more. Since then, the Soviet Union has been recapitalized annually by aid from the United States and from American and European banks. These loans have been even more profitable than the seizure of Central Europe, perhaps. However, both by its foreign and its domestic policies, the United States has been decapitalizing itself. A socialistic economy is a parasitic one. Its continued life depends on the life of the host. Both the USSR and the U.S. are today parasites living off the American people. There is no future for the American people until they rid themselves of the parasites, which means a radical change of perspective with regard to the nature of civil government. Unless we have freedom under God and in obedience to Him, our definition of wealth is born of hunger, not of bounty. One American, long a prisoner in the Soviet Union, saw wealth as one potato, and two potatoes as undreamed of wealth. A refugee couple from Cambodia celebrated their wedding anniversary in the Cambodian jungle with an unexpected and welcome gift in their hunger, a rat's skin shared with them to boil into a broth. A decapitalized and unfree society redefines wealth in pathetic terms, to each according to his needs, Marx held, and the Marxists have reduced the level of needs to beggarly dimensions. They have redefined wealth to make it the legitimate possession of the state, and none other. Redefinition has occurred in many areas. Students are routinely taught that there is an economic distinction between consumption and investment. Franklin W. Ryan and Dr. Elgin Grossclose, in his excellent America's Money Machine, the story of the Federal Reserve System, show otherwise. The family is called by them the greatest production enterprise in society. And yet we are today at war against the family. If I feed myself and my family, I am investing in our future. If I use junk food, I am making a poor investment. Whatever money I spend on the family is either a good or bad investment or consumption. To indict the idea of consumption is absurd. There is a good consumption and unsound consumption. The point of it all is that we are seeing an assault on and erosion of the biblical doctrine of wealth and stewardship. In its place, the state has the new God wants to remake man in society, and it believes that it can also create wealth by legislation, taxation, redistribution, and controls. What the modern state is accomplishing instead is the corrosion of true wealth and morality as well. The modern state has become history's great devourer of widows' houses, while it talks piously of a love for the poor, and the church is largely silent in the face of this growing evil. 
The sure promise of God to all such is judgment. Unless men separate themselves from these evil ones to the Lord, who says to us today, as Moses did when Israel worshipped the golden calf, quote, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. Unquote. Exodus 32, 26, March 1982. Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the love he had us by his pain, the very prize. It was there at Calvary's tree, where he died for you and me. Tell the 